Good morning. I'm Heidi, and I'm going to be reading scripture with you this morning. We're going to be reading from Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they could not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to them, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated and let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. We just pray, God, that you would give Mike wisdom as he shares um, just truth with us this morning. God, we pray that you would encourage us, convict us, and just be with us, God. We love you and are just so thankful for the way that you walk with us. In your name, amen. Oh, Capra kids, people, and children can be dismissed. It's like over half the church this morning, I think. (laughs) All right. Well, how are we, family? Good. Good to see you all. Happy first week of the new year. Doing good? Good. Feels oddly dark in here this morning, but... All right. Ah, cool. Well, if you're a guest, welcome. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to open uh, scripture together this morning, continuing our way through uh, the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 22 now. So um, we find ourselves in the midst of these parables in which what's happening, what's taking place here is Jesus is confronting the corruptness of Israel's leadership. And so uh, before we jump into this parable in particular, uh, I think we just need to kind of ask, how did we get here and kind of recap, because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Matthew. Um, and so just to, to, to try to help get our, our minds back around where we're at in the text, um, just a little bit of, of review. So remember, back in Matthew 21, uh, we saw Jesus enter into Jerusalem. He came into Jerusalem humble, uh, sitting on a donkey. Uh, and, and what we know is that his ministry in Galilee at that point was finished. Uh, he would no longer return there, but he would be settled essentially in Jerusalem for what is the final week of his life. And his entrance into Jerusalem was a humble one. Uh, the unique thing, though, about his entrance into the city at this point is that he actually received the royal recognition that was being given to him rather than rejecting it, right? So this is a big transition point in the gospel because up until this point, remember, uh, whenever Jesus kind of was uh, talking about and predicting his, his death um, or whenever he would ask anyone who he was and there was a, a correct confession, uh, his response to them would be to be silent. You tell them, don't go and tell anyone about this. Uh, but this is a unique point in that Jesus receives this royal recognition as uh, the king, as the promised one who would be seated on the throne of David for forever, just as God had promised throughout uh, the Old Testament story. And so throughout the rest of the gospel of Matthew, uh, one of the things that we're going to see is the political nature of Jesus's life and ministry. It's going to take center stage, which is something that we'll talk about more specifically uh, next week as Jesus is confronted by um, 
more religious leaders. They ask a question about taxes and Caesar, and, and it's very politically charged, and, and really so is the whole week of, of his final week of his life, his whole ministry is, for that matter. Uh, but what else are we seeing from Jesus? All right, well, like I said, we, we see him as the promised king who is to sit on the Davidic throne. Uh, so he, we see him as, as the promised and, and better king, right? That Jesus satisfies what all other Israel kings could not accomplish. He, he's, he's the one who does accomplish those things. And so he's, he is the better promised one. He's the better promised king. We see also that Jesus is the better priest, right? Jesus is in confrontation in this moment with, with the priests, uh, and the priests, are not, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be caring for the people. They're supposed to be uh, shepherding and, and leading and, and teaching the people. Uh, and we'll see in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 23 that they are indeed teaching scripture, uh, but their lives aren't being lived in obedience to God. And so what we see in Jesus is that he's the better priest. He's the better high priest who truly cares about his people and truly intercedes for the people and truly teaches God's word to the people and truly obeys God perfectly in our place. And then we see also that Jesus is the final prophet. Jesus's words here, Jesus's teachings here are very prophetic in nature. And we'll talk again about this more in a couple of weeks or months depending on how long it takes us to get there. But um, we need to remember that when we talk about prophecy, we're not talking about future telling. That wasn't and is not the primary role of the prophets in Scripture. Rather, the primary role of the prophets in Scripture uh, is to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. Right? This, this storyline is, is set up in the Pentateuch. Uh, it's set up primarily in, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, where God... Uh, kind of gives this picture of two paths, two directions, that if the people of Israel obey the covenant, they'll experience blessing. But if they disobey the covenant, they'll experience curse. And then, and then you have the story continue on uh, throughout the historical writings of scripture. And, and what happens? A regular pattern of disobedience. And so the role of the prophets in that regard, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, is to, to call the people back to covenant faithfulness, all the while uh, uh, warning them about judgment that would be coming, and also reassuring them with hope of a messianic king who would come. And that would, of course, be Jesus. But Jesus in his his ministry (coughs) is prophetic. The, the, The difference, though, is that at this point, for Israel, Israel's leaders in particular, uh, it's too late. A, a shift has come. And that's what Jesus is, is talking about. There's, there's a transition that's come. No longer is Israel's leadership and also Israel in this regard being called back to covenant faithfulness. Rather, they're being told that something new is taking place. And this is, this is very clear here in the text. Even, even the, the Pharisees, right, they're in, uh, in verse 45 of chapter 21, after Jesus has told these first two parables, their response to Jesus is, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Right? So even the religious leaders themselves were like, hmm, that kind of sounds like us. Which, which more than likely didn't feel great because right? Jesus is exposing uh, some, some realities. And so that's, that's kind of the, the context of, of where we're at right now. And, and we're entering now into this third parable. So this is one of those spaces where uh, we need to remember that chapter numbers and verses um, were not inspired or in the original manuscripts of, of the Bible. Right? This is uh, when you see chapter 22, uh, some scholar decided that this would be a good spot to put the number 22. And to be honest, it may not be the best spot to put the number 22 in this particular instance, because this parable uh, very clearly fits with the previous parables. It's, it's the third in a succession of parables. And so that's kind of where we're headed this morning. Now, we good? Caught up? All right. Now, at the risk of alienating everyone, 
And I'm sorry for this, kind of. I have to say, and you know this, I love country music. <laughs> like, wait a minute, where are we going? I feel like this sermon transitioned. <laughs> it's true. I love, I love country music. Most of you know this. I don't know what it is like, about it. I, just, I think it's just what I was raised on, and so it's just in me. Like, I, I just love country music in all of its horrible glory. But here's, here's the reality. Here's the truth about country music and country musicians. They are horrible theologians. Horrible theologians. And it's interesting because country singers like to sing about God. But they almost never get it right. Like almost never. Uh, and it's really it's sad, to be honest. And the truth is, is that country musicians should just stay out of the theological realm. Most, most musicians, for that matter, other than maybe Christian ones, should stay out of the theological realm. Here's a couple of examples for us, and do bear with me, please. I have songs. Uh, one of them, one of them is called Me and Jesus by Brad Paisley. And this, and this just goes in a long line of, of really horrible. Uh, there's another one called, uh, I think it's called My Church. And uh, this, yeah, woman gets on her, <laughs> you've heard it. She goes out into the mountains and she's like, this is my church. Anyways, horrible. Here's, here's, here's Brad Paisley's words. Listen to them with me. I knew a man that once was a sinner. That's, that's a decent start, right? I knew a man that once was a drunk. I knew a man that once was a loser. Here we go. He went out in the woods and made an altar out of a stump. It sounds better with the tune, but anyways. And me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. Me and Jesus got our own thing going, and we don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. It's good stuff, right? I'll stop with that one. The next one, <clears throat> even better, Kenny Chesney, right? Kenny Chesney, here we go. <laughs> some, some of you have heard this. Uh, what is, I can't remember what this song is called. Um, anyways, here it is. Preacher told me last Sunday morning, son, you better start living right. You need to quit the women in whiskey and carrying on all night. That's good advice. <laughs> Don't you want, this has a lot of country lingo in it, don't you want to hear him call your name when you're standing at the pearly gates? I told the preacher, yes, I do, but I hope they don't call today because I'm not ready. <laughs> and he goes on, everybody wants to go to heaven. That's what it's called. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Have a mansion high above the clouds. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go down. <laughs> Super catchy. Anyways, Said preacher, maybe you didn't see me. Listen, this is, it gets really good. Maybe you didn't see me throw an extra 20 in the plate. There's one for everything I did last night and one to get me through today. Here's a 10 to help you remember. Next time you got the good Lord's ear, say I'm coming, but there ain't no hurry. I'm having fun down here. Don't you know? Everybody wants to go to heaven, so on and so forth. You get the point horrible theologians. Now, what's, what's the point, right? What do these silly songs have to do with this text? Well, I think they epitomize what really is the popular perception of God's human and Christianity. We might laugh because we know it's off, and maybe some of you don't. We're here to tell you it is. This is, this is not how God deals with humans. This is not how humans get to deal with God. This is not a good representative of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because what it is, is it's this kind of free bird, God doesn't really care what we do perspective. As long as we're not totally hateful and murderous and just a little bit more good than bad, then we're good. And, and, and what it ultimately is, is this kind of fist in the face of God that says, I will, I will respond to you in my time and on my terms. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. I don't need a community. I don't need scripture. I'm having fun down here. 
it'll all work out because I'm just a little bit more better than I am bad. And yet what this parable serves is to be a warning against that ridiculous, damnable thinking. So here's, here's the main idea from our text this morning. The Father has graciously prepared the wedding feast and invited all humanity. But we can only enter on the terms of the host. And the question is, will we receive his invitation on his terms or reject it? That's what this parable is teaching us. So for our time here this morning, three points. We're going to look at, number one, the preparation of the feast. Number two, the invitation to the feast. And then number three, the joining of the feast. So number one, the preparation of the feast. Let's read the text again. Matthew 22, starting there in verse 1. And again, so that, that phrase in and of itself is, is the phrase that indicates to us that this is a continuation of what Jesus has been doing. Okay? And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. We'll we'll stop there. So this morning, first thing I want us to see here is is just these, these parables as a whole, Right? in order to get the full picture. Right? Now, remember, they're all speaking to the same people. Who are these parables being spoken to? Yes, Pharisees, uh, the chief priests, uh, the religious leaders. Right? That's, uh, that's what uh, we see there in verse 23 of chapter 21. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him and, as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And so after Jesus challenges them and their question, then he goes on to speak these parables against them, specifically. It's specifically spoken to them and their current reality. Now, furthermore, it's important for us to understand that all of these parables are very similar in nature. And, And they're similar in nature in that each parable is ultimately about the rejection of Jesus and thus of God in some way, shape, or form. Right, so in the first parable that we looked at, the parable of the two sons in verses 28 through 32 of chapter 21, right, you had this invitation that was given out to two sons. One son said no and then went. One son said yes and then didn't go. And Jesus' question was, who was the obedient son? And it was the son who initially said no, but ultimately went. And what Jesus was teaching is that the religious leaders were like the son who said yes, but didn't go and ultimately disobeyed God. It was this kind of outward picture of, of religiosity and morality and, and kind of excitement that was like, yes, I'm, I'm eager, I'm excited to obey God, but not really. And that shows itself to be true through the actions of, of their lives, through the way that they're, they're living. They're not actually living in obedience to scripture. The next parable was the parable of the tenants. And then you have this picture of the, the master uh, who, who buys a field and, and plants a vineyard and, and d- digs a, a fence, a wine press, and just creates this beautiful vineyard that's to be tended by the workers. Right? And then time comes for the harvest, and he sends servants, and then what do the, what do the tenants do? They kill them. Right? And he sends more. What happens? Kills them. And then what does he do? He sends the son. Right? And what happens to the son? He kills him. But the picture's obvious, right? The picture's clear, right? The tenants um, are the religious leaders. And the first set of servants and the second set of servants are, are the prophets. More than likely, you have, you have a picture of the prophets in the Old Testament, and then more than likely, you have a picture of uh, the second set of servants or prophets, namely John the Baptist, who would come and proclaim a message of repentance, and he also was refused. And then you finally have Jesus, who was refused as well by the religious leaders, And then here, we just have this culmination of these parables. Um, 
And so they're about the rejection of Jesus and thus ultimately of God, right? And, and more specifically, what we see in these parables, what they're doing is they're recounting the story of God with Israel from Genesis onward. This, is, this has been the story. And so this is, this is why there's a longing. This is why there's a need for this Messiah because no one else is cutting it. And so ultimately what we have here is, is, is just this reality that it's not a pretty picture, right? The Bible is, and I love this about the Bible, is it's, it's not a story of idealism, right? When, when we go throughout the, the Old Testament story, we shouldn't be looking at it like, oh, that's, you know, that's a great way to live life. No, it's mostly a really bad way to live life. That's the whole point. Is that, that humans, when we try to do things on our own, don't do really well. And so it's not a pretty picture. It's not ideal. Rather, what we have in the story of Scripture is the story of the incredible mercy, grace, and steadfast love of Yahweh, the one who, for whatever reason, loves golden calf worshipers. It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Right? But this is, this is the message that has been put on repeat in the Gospel of Matthew, right? That, that what the Father has done is, is he has lavishly prepared a feast. And so the Father in this parable is, of course, representative of God the Father, who desires to display his goodness to humanity. His, his desire is that we would experience his joy. His desire is that we would experience his blessing. And it's immense, and he's prepared it, and it's ready for us to receive. Right? So there's a few things, I think, for us to see about the preparation of the feast. First off, we need to see that, it's the, fe- the, or that the feast is the Father's initiative. Right? The feast is the Father's initiative. Notice in all of these parables that we've worked through since Matthew chapter 21, whether it's the, the Father calling two sons, or the master preparing a vineyard, or the father preparing a feast, it's always the initiative of God. Always. God is, God is the one who initiates the pursuit after humanity. Because apart from that, we don't want him. Apart from his initiative, apart from his pursuit, apart from his preparation, we will have nothing to do with God. We will ignore him. We will stick our fist in the sky and say that we don't need him. Right? And I think, I think the reality that we have to, to, to learn to see is that God's initiative is all around us. Right? If we would only slow down to look and to see and to, to listen, the Father is constantly initiating. The second thing for us to see here is this, is that the feast is the Father's gift. It is the Father's gift. Right? Notice that the language is very specific in verse 4. When he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared what? My dinner. Right? Now, get, get the picture, though. This is a feast. This is a feast for loads of people to come and celebrate and experience joy and gladness, but the Father is very clear. It is his feast. It is, he says, my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves. And so it's, it's not <clears throat> anything short of just lavish and beautiful. The Father delights to give good gifts to his people. He wants to shower us with blessing just because he's a good and loving father. Like that is, that is, that is God's posture towards us, right? But the third thing that we need to see here then is that the feast is the father's joy. 
So it's his initiative, it's his gift, and it's his joy. And, and this is really representative of, of both the wedding and the vineyard settings. Two realities that were indicative of joy. There, there, were, there were few ways to more clearly articulate and picture joy than a wedding feast and a vineyard. And, and in scripture, whenever we see wedding feasts and we see vineyards, we're intended to, to understand it as a picture of, of abundance and a picture of provision and an, just an abundance of joy. God wants humanity to experience joy. You have the, the extensive party that a wedding was. Right? A wedding feast in, in ancient culture was a week-long celebration. Right? Like, we don't do weddings like that. Right? Like, how many of you, you like, you... It's hard enough to get you to a wedding. And then when you get there, you're like, can we go yet? For, for whatever reason, we've associated it with some level of misery now. They're like, oh, I gotta get dressed. I'm like, oh. No, the wedding, it was, it was, it was the epitome of, of joy. And then coupled with the vineyard, uh, which was a picture of the, just the production of good wine. It's, it's all meant to be this picture of abundant and overflowing joy. Right? And I think it's important for us to understand the Father's posture towards us in this regard. Because right? it's so easy for us to just think that, that the Father is just, you know, arms folded, never smiling, scowl, eyebrows like turned down, just always like, always like looking over your shoulder to see where you failed. Right? That, doesn't, that doesn't sound like joy to me. Right? And yet the picture that we get in Scripture at the beginning and then the glimpses that we get throughout the story and then the reality that we see in the personal work of Jesus and then the way that the story culminates it's a beautiful party. It's a beautiful feast. It's a beautiful celebration. You see, being a disciple of Jesus is intended, it is intended to be an experience of joy. And it, and it is if we'll submit ourselves to the king. I think, I think the reason a lot of Christians are miserable is because we, we're not actually submitting to the king. And, and we think that if we come to the king on our own terms, somehow we'll find ourselves to be more satisfied. But that kind of voids the whole idea of a king and replaces the true king with the false king. You'll never be able to satisfy that. Uh, Bruner, in his commentary, he says this about this feast. He says, quote, the joy of discipleship is also caught in the words wedding party. The invitation is not to a funeral, Amen. Jesus' call to repentance, to turn around and face God, was a call to joy. This is why Jesus' message could be called the good news. So I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with most of you, some of you not so much, right? But uh, is, this, is this what you've been called into? And if it's not, this is, this is what we would want to and in, in, in are calling you into, is an experience of joy under the beauty, the steadfast love of the Father who's prepared a lavish feast for his children. Right? That, that we get to partake of as members of Christ. By, by repenting and turning to the king and entering the feast on his terms, this is the reality. We actually experience goodness. But then the question comes, right? Well, what about all the crappy stuff? Right? Like, why does so much of life suck? Anyone? What? Why not? Right? Like, I, but if the Father is so good and wants us to see his good, then why all the bad? Well, that's the next point. And, and what we see is that humanity has refused the invitation to his feast 
in favor of our own. And it just doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. So number two, the invitation to the feast. Now, we'll look at the text again. And I, won't, I won't read it all, but you have, you have an initial invitation, right, in verses one through three, and then you have a refusal. And then again, there's another invitation in verses four through six, uh, but then another refusal. Now look at, look at verse five, so we can get this again. Uh, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. So again, picking up the language that we've already seen, right, in the previous parables. But then notice the response in verse seven, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So it was customary in Jesus's culture uh, that when a wedding happened, there would be two invitations. I guess it might be kind of like a save the date and then a legitimate invitation. (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. Anyways, there were, there were two invitations that would, that would essentially go out. And one invitation was, was basically an invitation of like, get ready. A, A feast is coming. And then there would be another invitation in some way, shape, or form that would give all of the, the specifics of how this feast was supposed to play itself out. So this was, this was the norm. Jesus was, he set his, his parable in the, the context of, of what would have been understood to happen, to, to, to have taken place for a wedding feast. Okay, so no one would have been shocked at how this was working itself out as far as the wedding itself, the wedding feast itself goes. Now, there's a good deal of debate around who this parable has in mind. So, Many interpreters and scholars believe that there is an historical progression going on in these parables. And and here's what this kind of would look like. In the first parable, you have workers in the vineyard, early Israel. Uh, In the second, you have the tenants killing the son, Jesus's present day. And then in this parable, we have a wedding feast, which they would deem to be future or Christian era. Does does that make sense? So first parable kind of would line us up with early Israel history leading up to the second parable, which would have been Jesus's specific day leading into the third parable, which would have been representative more of a near future reality of the church or a distant future reality at some point in time in the future. Uh, That's one take. Thus, what you would have here is verses three through four, symbolizing Old Testament prophets preparing Israel for the Messiah. Verse seven, representing the refusal and what would be a judgment. And then verses eight through 10 is a turn with new servants and participants in the kingdom or the church age, right? Uh, Now, while there is certainly something to this, I don't believe, and many other scholars as well, don't believe that it's necessary to understand the text in this way. Rather, we can understand the text, and I think should understand the parable to fit specifically within its current context. In other words, this is not simply a picture of the future. Jesus, Jesus is not saying like, hey, this is how things are going to look. Jesus is saying, this is how things are. He's, 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 teach, he's teaching the religious leaders again, right? He's talking specifically to them. So if he's, like, why would he be saying something else if he's speaking specifically to them? We have to keep that in mind as we work through the text. It's not a picture of the future. Well, well what then? Well, this parable's a warning, just as all of them have been. It is a warning specifically to those in Jesus's day. And then this is where it can be applied to our day to hear the invitation of God and not refuse it. Because the invitation is to Jesus no matter what. Uh, Someone sent me a text message the other day. It was a picture of a book and there was a little paragraph that was highlighted that said that the people in the Old Testament, guess what they were looking forward to and being called to? Faith in Jesus. And, and what are we looking forward to and being called to? Faith in Jesus. Uh, guess what the whole story is about? Yeah, faith in Jesus. Right? 
One story, a singular story taking us, leading us to Jesus. Thank you, Bible Project. So amazing. Yet, even though the warning is to hear the invitation of God and not refuse it, yet refusal is what we see here. So the question I think we need to ask is what kind of refusal and why? Because there are some, there are two, at least two specific ways in which we see refusal happening here in this text. The first is just plain old hard-heartedness. So look at verse three again. Uh, Well, verse two, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. They would not come. So this is, this first refusal is just a simple matter of hard-heartedness. The idea of that phrase, would not come, is the idea of continuing rejection, they hear, they hear the invitation. They hear the call to Jesus. They hear the call to the king, but they don't want anything to do with the king. Right? They, they've convinced themselves that they are good. And yet in the midst of that, there is just this constant refusal, this constant ongoing rejection And what it is, is it's a rejection because of a lack of believing and wanting God in his will and desires. Like that's the reality that's been exposed in the lives of these religious leaders. Is that they they have this front, this really good religious facade, right? They do all the things, like they show up to church and they pray and they give and they read the Bibles. Like they got the Bibles memorized. Holy man, they're amazing. But their hearts are so distant. From the king. It's really terrifying if you think about it for a moment. Right? Like I hope this, I hope that the, the, these passages in 21 and 22 have had this effect where it's like, like in some ways, like, man, these, these, these scare the hell out of you. I know a lot of scripture. I go to church every Sunday. I don't just go, I preach, guys. <laughs> My word. Right? And how easy is it for us to just kind of like be lulled to sleep by this? Right? To, to think that we're able to just bank on these things. I, I, this is what the warning is. It, is. it is a call for this sort of like introspection. To, to assess, like, are we, actually, are we actually believing and wanting God and his will and his desires, or are we actually rejecting them? Bruner says this about this. He says, um, wanting and believing are almost identical in this gospel, so in the whole of Matthew. Okay, so whenever you, when you, whenever you see these phrases, there, there's a similarity to them. What we want is what we really believe. Thus, Faith in Matthew is not only trust, but also a movement of the will which presses in its desires toward Jesus. In other words, faith is not a passive intellectual assent to an idea. It's a life of obedience. It is an act of allegiance to the king. It's not simply us passively like, yeah, sure, Jesus. Like, historically, that's easy to prove. It's easy to to show that Jesus existed. But to live a life of obedience to the king is something else. And this is what, what we're being called to. This is, we're being called to wake up from, from hard-heartedness, right? And, and, and assess, like, what is, is our faith displaying itself in obedience, in allegiance to our king? It, because, because what we do there is, is we trust that in doing so, like God actually, again, remember, he has our good in mind. He has our, our joy in mind. He has our flourishing in mind. He has called us to 
a feast, to joyful discipleship. So hard-heartedness. The second is thing that we see in this text is just contentment. Contentment. Right? Um, look at the look at it. Verse five. So the feast is ready, right? The father's prepared it. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. Verse five. But they paid no attention, and watch what they do. They went off one to his farm another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So the second refusal here, then, is a matter of contentment. Specifically, it's contentment in good things that we have allowed to become more satisfying than God himself. Now, this is, this is always a real challenging tension in Scripture, because I, I think it's easy for us to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and be like, oh, I can't experience anything good in life. That's, that's not what's being said, What's being said is that the good things need to always be kept in check under the ultimate good thing, right? Like, uh, you know, marriage, family, singleness, jobs, like those are all career, good experience. Those are good gifts that are given to us that God wants us to delight in and enjoy. Like the initial creation command was to do some work, right? It's good, but it's not ever to become ultimate, those things will never give us ultimate satisfaction, and yet those things so quickly lull us to sleep. You see, the people have, in Jesus' context and in ours, the people have forgotten God. In Jesus' context, what you have here is, is this interesting thing where Rome, the Roman Empire, has allowed them to have enough peace enough comfort, and enough security that they just don't feel like they actually need Yahweh anymore. They're getting along fine without him. They they haven't experienced enough pressure, it seems. And so they they deceptively believe they're good. But here's what uh, Peter Gentry, in his book, How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets, which I highly recommend, uh, to you. He says this, he says, forgetting God entails arrogance. It's to look at our health, family, job, property, and success and say, who needs the Lord? I'm getting on five by myself. Thank you. Now, again, I, I want us to work through the tension here because this is, this is a spot where it's easy to just feel like what am I supposed to do? I'm an American. <laughs> like, I got stuff. Like, and that's true. Like, God's not unaware of that reality, just so, just so we're clear. God is not unaware of our social economic reality. Right? But he still calls us to be satisfied to the king, run to the king, right? Um, now, here, here, Scripture has all sorts of warnings and... Um, ways of communicating that this would be the reality. And, and I think scripture wants us to hear these and assess. So just a few for us. Uh, Deuteronomy is very, very specific to what is happening here in our text. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 11, it says this, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Does that not sound pretty similar to this parable? This is, like, this is a, a voice, the voice of the Lord, calling his people to what? Covenant faithfulness. And, and, and it's, it's, the tension is very like, palpable in the text because God is saying, um, you're going to experience blessing and flourishing and riches, and it's going to be amazing, but don't forget me. And, and don't take uh, uh, the, the success for yourself. Like, don't think that you've somehow created this for you. But rather, remember the Lord. Right? And there's a few other warning passages that kind of came to mind as I was working through this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what this says. It says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. One more. Uh, yeah, 2 Timothy, chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will, be, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men." So what we need to ask then is what are we finding our satisfaction in? Like who is really the king? We really need to ask that question. Who is truly the king of our heart? Only Jesus will satisfy only Jesus will satisfy. Everything else leads to ruin. And it only lets you down, right? Like, all the stuff, it just, it just lets us down, right? We all experienced this. We just had Christmas. We give our kids the things, and they're like, eh. Like, dang it. Next year, I'll give them a box. <laughs> it only lets us down. What are we finding our satisfaction in? God's feast or our own? Because we can create really good feasts, but God's is always better. God's is always better. And so will we heed then the warnings of Scripture? Will we we listen to Jesus' invitation to the better feast? So then number three, joining the feast. See if I can get that to work. Uh, Joining the feast. All right, let's listen to the text again here. Um, 
Okay, verse eight. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. They refused. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants, verse 10, just so we're clear, this is like a picture of of discipleship. Uh, Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And you have to love this. It's just a simple invitation. It's not like, hey, there's a wedding coming. Get your crap together, and then you can get in. It's just a simple invitation. And it's, and it's so interesting. Uh, the word, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Um, yeah, I'll stop. We'll get there later. Verse 11. But... When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. At which, if you cringe, that's a reasonable response. That that is a reasonable response, that text. Like, we should should hear that and be like, I don't... What do we do? Okay, the joining of the feast. Okay, okay so going to a wedding, we're all, we're all familiar with that experience, right? How many of you like to go to a wedding and get dressed for a wedding? Some of you do. The ladies all raise their hand. Most of the dudes are like, eh. <laughs> Weddings are interesting, right? Especially, especially when you have specific dress codes, recent experiences. That was actually my favorite because you just said what to do. It was like, do this. And I was like, it's like, great, we can do that. Um, but have you ever been to the wedding where the person like didn't get the memo? Right? Or maybe, and maybe for whatever reason, you're like the rebellious person who's like, I'm not going to dress up for the wedding. And you have the audacity <laughs> to show up as if you didn't get the memo. Right? And that's kind of the picture that, that we have here. Now, here's, here's the overall point of this text. The, the, the king sets the terms. The king has said, this is how you get into the feast. And then the question is, will you join the feast on the terms of the king? He's made the invitation. He's set the dress code. He said it's ready. Will you come as he has asked? And what we see here in the joining of the feast is this, with, uh, it correlates with the invitation. And then what we see is that the invitation is, is closed off to the refusers. So that's, that's verse seven. Uh, in, in this case, I think specifically, Jesus is referencing the leadership of Israel and the, and the people who are following in their wake. Uh, and then, in, and I think verse seven is specifically a reference to eighty seventy, uh, in in which you'll see the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and all of those things. Right? They've refused, and Jesus is saying something different is happening. Something new is coming. The temple won't be necessary anymore. It's amazing. Why? Because Jesus is the temple. Right? And and also us, right? the church. So the invitation is closed off to the refusers. And so the question here is this, or, or the, the reality is, is this. A day will come when the invitation will no longer be open. Come now. Come now to the feast. Stop refusing and stop thinking that you can show up with a different outfit. Right? Come to the feast on the king's terms. And now, now here's the other reality that we see here is that the invitation is closed off to the refusers, but the invitation paradoxically, is open to all, both the bad and the good. And, and, and what you have here, again, is just this kingdom, like this flipped upside down reality of the kingdom because everyone expected Israel to be like, oh my gosh, the Messiah is here. We should go to that feast. And they refuse it. And then Jesus says, go to the main roads and gather all the bad and all of the good. Remember, who did he say previously was going to get into the kingdom before the Pharisees? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Those who are representative of all that is wicked and evil. The word, this is where I wanted to go, the word bad, 
uh, in the Greek, it means really bad. <laughs> um, it means those who are morally corrupt and evil. But the good news is this, is that those who are morally corrupt and evil get into the wedding feast because of the king. Right? Yet, they still need to get in on the king's terms. Right? And so that's the invitation. The reality here, the, 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 um, the admonition for us is this, is that we must receive the righteousness of Christ that comes through repentance, which is then displayed in turn to allegiance to the king. Right? See, our, it, it, it's not based on our, our family, pedigree, doesn't matter if you've grown up in the church. Right? That's not the king's terms. The king's terms are not church attendance. The king's terms are the finished work of Jesus. Right? It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter your, your morality. Right? What matters is that we turn to Jesus and bear fruit for the kingdom. Which, what is, what is bearing fruit for the kingdom? Such an interesting question, isn't it? I, th- I think this is where Jesus is taking us. Right? I, this is, it's at the end of Matthew 22. Right? Someone comes up to him and asks him, what's the greatest commandment and what does Jesus say? He sums it up, right? In love of God and love of neighbor. Right? So what, what does a life of discipleship look like? Right? It, it, it looks like a rejection of our feast that we can create, whether that be through good religious things, morality, or, or just like straight up rebellion. Either way, you're, you're creating a feast. It looks like turning from that and turning to Jesus and following Jesus and obeying Jesus and seeing Jesus as king. It's finding satisfaction in Jesus. It's allowing Jesus to transform you. And it's, it, it displays itself in loving God and loving neighbor. Now, here's what we'll close with. There will be a feast. There will be a feast. A future feast is coming. We live, we live in it already, in this reality, this, this already not yet, like, we're there. As, as disciples of Jesus, we're ready to experience it. Okay? But it's coming Here's what Revelation says, verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 6 through 10 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, that is the church. It was granted her to clothe herself clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That is the king's terms. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God. Worship God. And then verse, or chapter 21, verses one through eight says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The invitation has come now. Jesus has accomplished what we could not. Jesus has accomplished what no one could. And Jesus has risen and ascended to his throne. He is Lord and King. He invites us into joyful worship, a joyful, abundant feast in his presence. That is the invitation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would hear your words this morning, that we would see that you are good and that we would delight in you. I pray, help us to search our hearts to see where we're finding satisfaction elsewhere, that we would turn and obey you. Um, and I pray for any here this morning, Lord, who are, who are questioning that you would just open their eyes to see the goodness of Jesus, to see that he's come and accomplished the work that we cannot, has defeated Satan and sin and death and hell, and is the risen glorious king. May we respond in worship to him now. It's in Jesus' good name that we pray, amen.